Hello and welcome to Primary Sources, a spin-off podcast from the Doctor Who show where we take what people were saying about Doctor Who in the 80s and the 90s and we riff on it. The conversation might stick closely to the primary source in the letter or it might go off on its own tangent. Who knows? For this episode, I'm joined by Richard Smith from the Something Who podcast. Hello, Richard. Hi there, Rob. Good to be with you. Great pleasure to have you on. We've been wanting to do this for some months, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I'm glad our, uh, our calendars are finally aligned. <laughs> they certainly are. Speaking of calendars, I have a magazine in front of me from August of 1987. Okay, yeah. Let's get into some letters from it. This first one is called Masterly, and it runs. Although I've been a reader of your publication since the first issue... I have never felt it necessary to write to you. Until now. I have just finished reading the review of The Ultimate Foe, the final story of the very mixed 23rd season of Doctor Who, a.k.a. The Trial of a Time Lord. Mm -hmm. I wish to take exception to one aspect of that review, specifically the section regarding Anthony Ainley's return as the Master after poor treatment of the character in The Mark of the Rani. Within the limitations of the two episodes given to him, I feel that Anthony Ainley came back in fine form even though he was limited to appearing on the Matrix screen in episode 13. In one or two of his past appearances in Doctor Who, your reviewers, or possibly a letter writer, accused Mr Ainley of over-the-top moustache-twirling histrionics, a point I disagree with. I cannot recall ever having seen either Roger Delgado or Anthony Ainley twirl their respective characters' (laughs) moustache. I would like to point towards Michael Jaston's Valyard. His relentlessly vindictive prosecutor began to wear thin with me by the middle of the second story. And during the final story of the season, The Ultimate Foe, talk about hand-wringing, moustache-twirling, melodramatic villain laughs. At least with Anthony Ainley's master, he did not go over the top, but kept his performance in the style I have enjoyed since he assumed the unenviable task of stepping into the role made beloved to Who fans by the late Roger Delgado. His quiet, sinister laugh fits with his version of The Master perfectly. Muttly, indeed. And I would also like to remind you that for episode 13, he was faced with performing his lines as a figure on a viewing screen, which obviously meant that he did not have any other performers to play off against. If it comes as a choice between Anthony Ainley's Master and the Valyard of Michael Jaston, allow me to say this. While Michael Jaston is an excellent performer, I'm not very enthusiastic about the idea of the character of the Valyard becoming the new humanoid arch-foe for the Doctor. I'm afraid, biased towards the character of the Master, both Roger Delgado's original and Anthony Ainley's follow-up, I feel that there is still more that can be done with the character and Ainley's characterization of the evil Time Lord. I hope that both will be around for a few more stories. And that's from Eric Hoffman, California, USA. Well, he had plenty to say, didn't he? He did. I always start with the longer ones. <laughs> so I guess in in sympathy with uh, with Eric, I, I also started to read Doctor Who magazine at issue one. So um, I was I just started secondary school in 1979, and I was um, I was coming home on the train, and in in the newsagents in the station there was a copy of Doctor Who Weekly. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's that's exciting. I must must have a look at that. And I'd say that that, alongside the David Whittaker Doctor Who and the Daleks book, was probably what turned me into a fan. So that, so that was probably a seminal moment for me. Fast forward to, to 87, I, I was just about to start university. That's the sort of right. era in my life that this sits in. 
I mean, I have to, I have to have some level of agreement with, with that letter in the sense that you get a bit fed up with the Valyard through fourteen episodes of of that season. I, th- I think mm. it, you know, it's a very interesting character, and it's a shame, I suppose, that rather than ex- examining the Valyard over a number of stories in several seasons, you you, you get everything lumped together and. Uh, and the trials scenes become a bit repetitive, and so, yeah, when the master turns up right at the end of that season, it is a bit of a breath of fresh air because it's it's someone new, someone new on the scene. So mm-hmm. there's there's certainly that. I mean, there's not very much moustache that either of the, you know that you know that, that he has to twirl. I mean, it's it, it, it's, a, it's a very neat moustache with with no with no end. So I'm not sure he could do very much twirling of it. It's a very well trimmed goatee. Yes. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, and the Valiard has no moustache at all, does he? So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to be able to do too much. I was interested here that Eric Hoffman was sort of almost terrified that the Valyard was going to come back <laughs> yes. as a recurring character. Yes, you know, and that that just never happened. Well, I mean, there weren't many series to go after this, but you know, it still never happened. It, yeah, I mean, that whole thing about the Valyard being somewhere in between the Doctor's last two regenerations never really panned out at all did it i mean it's asking a lot i suppose for the new series to pick that up you know 30 years on so 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 perhaps that's not a big surprise but yeah it, it was a, it was a tantalizing prospect i suppose in the in the mid to late 80s that you know what what who is this character i mean i suppose a bit like joe martin's doctor is now this whole you mm. know how does it fit into the into the chronology that we've accepted for the doctor the, the difference being that um as soon as the trial season was done, we got a, we got new creative uh, forces in, in Doctor Who with Andrew Cartmel, and the, the ideas kind of shelved and, and not come back to. Yeah, we're well, just talking on Joe Martin. I, I've been talking to people on social media about this, and I, I'm saying, look, if Jodie is going, Joe Martin's got her chance to be the Doctor, and they somehow have to fudge that she was the Fourteenth Doctor all along. Mm. If that doesn't happen. She is relegated to big finish and some fond memories for people, I think. Yeah, I mean, she could be, gosh, that's a thought, isn't it? She could become the modern Valyard, uh, you know, an exciting concept that's never fully realised. Uh, mm. it, it's a bit of a shame that, that when she came back in the season finale, they didn't really have anything much for her to do. After all of that, however many weeks it was, certainly about five weeks of of. of chewing it over and wondering what's going to happen and then of course the story was much more about well yeah as you said a kind of you know a huge amount of mythology spewed out in, in but 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 yeah the, the the dramatic aspect of joe martin coming back was rather lost yeah absolutely so that that's that's an interesting uh uh link we've made because i haven't actually made the valley hard joe martin link before in my life but uh, i believe in it already <laughs> well yeah um yeah, I, I guess you know the, the the great thing about Doctor Who is that there's there's enough going on in it that you can find these links. I mean, I don't know whether it's is because uh, with something Who podcast, we're always trying to find links between the old and the new. I, I mean, I wasn't deliberately trying to do that here, but but yeah, we've 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 brought together two kind of similar concepts from uh, from each end of the series. Very nice. Look, shall we move on to the next letter? Sure. Okay, this is called Video Verdict. I am pleased to see Doctor Who videos taking off in a big way with 14 titles, including those still being planned. However, 
The method of selection of stories for release has tended towards the repetitive, lacking in inspiration, until recently that is, as the first few releases were of Baker Hinchcliffe stories, which are good, but the great variety of Doctor Who stories has not been exploited properly. Surely what BBC Video should have done was select each new release from a different period to avoid stagnation. Also, I would like to suggest that the reason for low sales of The Seeds of Death was not necessarily its being black and white. After all, six episodes equals two and a half hours, although there are more than likely many reasons why a video release may succeed or fail to sell. I, and I'm sure many other fans, would like to see many stories from different periods released on video. Of the 17 complete Hartnell stories, not one has been used in this way. So, I have listed a few stories, together with the reasons why people might want to see them, as suggestions for video releases. Now, uh, I won't actually read out their reasons for each of these stories, but I will read the stories. Mm -hmm. They've suggested An Unearthly Child, The Aztecs, The Dalek Invasion of Earth, The Web Planet, The Time Meddler, <laughs> The Demons, City of Death, Ark of Infinity, <laughs> Resurrection of the Daleks, and the two doctors. I hope this list is of use as market feedback to BBC Video, and I also hope other fans will do the same to show where the Doctor Who video market really is and what is in demand. That's Tommy Wiley from Kirkwall in Orkney. My goodness. Yes. yes. That's, that's the far north, that, yeah. <laughs> but videos, Richard, were you buying them back in the day? Yeah, well, I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is fascinating because this, I think, is the point of... Um, departure between UK and Australian fandom I mean you've you've got in Australia in the 80s I I understand from sort of mm -hmm. Pertwee through to the end of the series almost on repeat whereas yes. in the UK it's on once and that's it with the exception of a very few stories which which get repeated now and then so yeah as far as I as far as I was concerned I suppose I started watching mid Pertwee so yeah, most of the Pertwee stories I hadn't seen. I'd only read the Target books. Um, and Baker, whilst I remembered them all, they were kind of distant memories by the time we get to this era in the mm. sort of mid to late eighties. So yeah, I was I was buying them. I bought the Seeds of Death, the very one that was um, mentioned in the letter. It was absolutely. I mean, I was really excited. I I grew up reading the the Troughton Target books. But there was no way of ever actually seeing Trout, and the, the only thing that happened was uh, in the early '80s they repeated the Crotons for episodes. But you know, it's it, it's not really a classic Trout and story that, and it's not it's, it's not the, <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, and it's not the sort of thing that I grew up with with reading. And of course, I I, I soon discovered that most of those those ones that, that that they'd written the books about were missing. The Seeds of Death was, I suppose, an opportunity to. You know, to see the Ice Warriors, a sort of classic um, Troughton monster. Um, so yeah, I was I was absolutely um, up for that, and I mean, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I suppose two things I remember: one was the abysmal quality of the vi of that video. Uh, it, it, I think the first episode was sort of okay, and then it just got very murky thereafter. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the other thing, of course, is you know, it's, it's another season six. Not all that brilliant. I mean, it, lots of good moments in it, but but you know, on the whole, it, it does drag a wee bit as as a six part story. Yeah, I, I, I you know would have been an avid buyer. I, I certainly would have gone for quite a lot of those um, in the list uh, that was provided there. 
A lot of black and whites in the list. It seems Tommy was very interested in seeing a lot of the, uh, well, well, Hartnell stuff he specifically called out. Yeah, and I think that that probably is, you know, at least in part. Uh, so, so I suppose the other thing to say is, if you were if you were associated with official fandom in the UK, the the Doctor Who Appreciation Society did have some copies of videos that were sort of distributed around. So it it was possible to see old stories, and certainly, you know, at conventions that they, they they would show videos, you know, in a room off to the side. So so there was that. But I, well, I didn't live in Leeds. I lived, uh, which is in in uh, the north of England, and and you know, sort of quite a long way from London. But also, I didn't even live in Leeds. I lived about 15 20 miles out so I was kind of I was living in, in a small village there was really no opportunity for me to get into to a city to a, a, a fan group in this kind of era so so yeah buying the videos was really the only way I was ever going to see them and I think the Hartnell and, and, and Troughton ones were the ones that really tickled my interest because you know I'd seen at least some of Pertwee and, and, and Baker but yeah I'd, I'd never really seen any of those really early ones Dalek Invasion of Earth was absolutely at the top of my list that I wanted to see. Uh, I mean, funnily enough, we, we we just reviewed that recently. I mean, it's it, it's a story that that is probably better in the novelization than than the way it's re- realized on screen. Although I think the first time I saw it, I was too excited about the prospect of, <laughs> of finally finally coming across it that I was going to be too, uh, too upset about that. They give it a good crack though, don't they, with the location filming? Oh yes. that, that, yeah, yeah. that's one of the things I've always liked about that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I was I was saying that I really love the location filming uh, in it. You know, you, you you can definitely tell that it's London. You, you you don't get actually the House of Parliament shot that you think you might get, but you do get uh, um, things like the the Victoria Monument and the Albert Hall and and some recognisable London landmarks. So yeah, no, I I think I think that the filming of that is definitely the high point. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, look, I picked this letter because it's just interesting to think of a time where there were 14 videos and people yes. were still looking at, you know, dozens of stories and wondering what would come next. It's, it's a crazy time. Yeah, well, it's a little bit like, I suppose, the um, the situation we've got with the Blu-rays now where, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, of course, there's absolutely no suspense anymore because we've seen all these stories 10 or 15 times before. If we, if we want to have done, maybe more. But... You know the the extras and you know some of the features that come with them, and I guess just because perhaps they're they're in higher quality and there's an opportunity maybe to see something we haven't seen before. It you know it's still tantalising. So so people are still getting excited about which order they're coming at, even now, even even though it's not about perhaps the the opportunity to see a story for the first time. Brilliant. Let's move on to this third letter uh, because we are running short on time and it's a short one. This one is called Not Child's Play. Let me begin by saying, like most do, the magazine is a very good read, full of information and colour. One relief, I must say, is the title to the letters page. Much better, as you also rightly said, you on who says it all. Reading through this issues, and uh, that they're referring to issue 125, mm-hmm. letters, I was intrigued to see several people mentioning the fact that Sylvester McCoy was not a total stranger to the screen, and I must agree. I've seen him several times and was delighted when I found out he was to be the next Doctor. 
I see the new outfit has been toned down considerably, which should please several people. Actually, I rather liked Colin's outfit. Before I close, I'd just like to bring up the matter that Peter Linford from Staffordshire mentioned in issue 125. I've been thinking exactly what he said for some time, that Doctor Who now works better during the week than on Saturdays. People go out more on Saturdays or work. Finally, I don't think that Doctor Who is a children's program. It really annoys me that all the novelizations are placed in the children's section of bookshops. And that's from Elaine Bull, Middlesex. Yeah, well, of course, that irritated me terribly when I was 18 as well, but um, or 19, but I, I guess I've come to, to live with that um, subsequently. Fascinating. So, yeah, I mean, Sylvester McCoy was a well-known figure in the UK, you know, he, he was he was well known on on children's television, but it, but he wasn't all that well known as an actor. He was he was you know, he turned up a, a lot in light entertainment programs, so it felt like the thin end of the wedge. To be honest, I remember when he was announced, it felt like you know the sort of person that you would pick to to be the star of a show when it's failing and uh, nobody really cares anymore. Now, you know, looking forward to to to. To what he actually did in the role, of course, you know, he made it his own, and and you know I, I've 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 got plenty of um, Sylvester McCoy stories that I enjoy watching, but but I do remember at that time thinking, oh, what's happened to the program? What, what, why why are we casting this kind of of uh, of actor into the role? So it just goes to show you you never can tell. I mean, you know, the same thing was true with uh, with Billy Piper, and you know people are still getting upset about the thought that John Bishop. Is a comedian, and of course, you know John Pertwee was was a comedian when 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 he was cast in the role, although he had been a dramatic actor in his youth. So you never can tell until you've seen it, I suppose. Yeah, I've often equated Sylvester's casting to Tom Baker's. I, I know there oh, aren't yes. exact parallels between them, but yeah. I think being cast in terms of their personality and what they were like actually as a person, hmm. I think is very similar. Yes, I mean nobody. Well. There must have been some people who who knew about Tom Baker. He was he was a film actor, but yeah, he, well, he certainly wasn't a big name in the UK when he was cast. And I think most people would have said Tom Who. Um, and mm. yet, by the end of the time, well, he, within two or three years, I mean, he was an absolute star. Within that first series, he was an absolute star across um, the UK. So yeah, it, it, it it's not really what um, what you are at the start; it's what you make with it for sure. It's a it's a good Definitely. analogy. Yeah, yeah. Final thing in this letter that we haven't really teased out: when Doctor Who goes out during the week, she's making the point that Saturdays yeah. people are going out. Yeah, that didn't age well, did it? That observation. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I, I I would never have believed in the 90s and even the early 2000s that Doctor Who could be a big name draw on a Saturday night. It just didn't seem at all conceivable. Mm. Uh, and yet, of course, you know, the magic worked once, so why couldn't it work again? I mean, it, it, it required, I suppose, the populist skill of Russell T. Davis. I, I, I wonder, I don't feel that either... Stephen Moffat or Chris Chibnall, if they'd been the first showrunner, could have cemented Doctor Who's position in the national consciousness as a thing you watch on a Saturday night as a feature, because it was mm. Russell T. Davis' ability to make it populist, to make it, I suppose, you know, about every man and every woman as well as about fantastic scenarios in outer space and, and, and monsters coming to Earth. 
and then once that was in place then then you could maybe you know do something a bit more outlandish with it subsequently so yeah i'm still reeling from that now but yeah i mean at the time it did feel like uh, it would never be on saturday again does sunday feel like the right time at present or should that move i've never liked sunday Mm. for doctor who and it's not i mean it's not because because of of um history so much as sunday night is a costume drama night in the in the uk it's typically there's there's country file which is a sort of you know it's, it's a nature program but it's the kind of thing that that, that people watch together and, and it, that's sort of cemented in the doctor who slot you either go earlier or later it's, it's just not quite the right place yeah i i don't it doesn't feel like sunday is the right place for it but you know i'm, I'm not somebody who does this for a living <laughs> well it may move again look on that note i want to thank you so much for doing this uh with me today uh richard it's been really fun to go through these letters yeah thanks uh it's it's a nice trip down memory lane i mean i, I I'm, I'm sure i read that um that issue of doc two monthly i don't remember those letters now but but yeah it's brought back memories of, of what it was like to be a fan in those days absolutely brilliant well thank you again yeah thanks rob it's been great 